Hello and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hello. Welcome I back. Said that very, I said that very Australian. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. How you been? Good, good. So excited for today's episode. Me too. Uh, today, I am going to be talking about one of the most dangerous and influential texts ever written. A book that would ultimately be responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of innocent lives, in particular, the lives of women. I am, of course, speaking of the Malleus Maleficarum, mm. a.k.a. The Hammer of Witches, which the Hammer of Witches sounds like, like a very cool name for like a metal band, but <laughs> this is not cool. <laughs> this book is not cool at all. <laughs> so what exactly is this book? The Malleus Maleficarum was originally published in 1486, and it is a fascinating document, a treatise, if you will. The, one of the things that makes it so interesting is that although it was written by a German Catholic clergyman named Heinrich Kramer, it is both a theological and a legal handbook on witchcraft and the persecution of witches. Sounds very dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And why this is so interesting is, and why it's important is, the, those two things had not previously been linked with any consistency. There was the legality of witchcraft and there was sort of the theological views on witchcraft. And the two had not really intertwined much prior to this writing, which is something I actually hadn't been that aware of prior to researching this. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really considered a crime to practice witchcraft. And individuals, if they were sort of being punished for it, it was usually like, uh, put them in the stocks in the square. That's your penance. You know, you messed up. Let's move on. Don't do that anymore. Not a crime, just frowned upon. Yeah. Don't do it because we're talking about folk magic. We're talking about, you know, this transition from paganism into Christianity, which is, you know, a challenging transition, mm. <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, in some cases, Christianity went as far as to deny the existence of witches altogether. And, and same thing on the legal side of things. And there really isn't any such thing as a witch. There's some people who just practice this this magic craft, this folk magic. So this book is completely groundbreaking in the most terrifying way possible because it served the following primary purposes. It puts out there, quote unquote, proof that witches do exist and they are completely enmeshed with Satan. And they, the book refutes all claims that witchcraft doesn't exist. It uses case studies of witches practicing their craft, and finally, how to identify and appropriately punish witches to ensure their ultimate extinction. Mm. Scary, right? Very. Yeah. This book ultimately had dozens of editions printed, and they sold out. And this that went on up to the 18th century. So a book from 1486 through the 1700s to remain so popular when it's so evil and horrible is mind-boggling and very disturbing. Wow. The irreparable harm 
this treaty's caused is just absolutely undeniable. And some scholars and historians actually sometimes rank this alongside the likes of Mein Kampf in terms of its horrendous impact on human history. Well, if I didn't know that was, if I didn't know this was the subject of the podcast, what if that was my guess is like an evil text. It is. is. Mein Kampf. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it, I, I think I once saw an article that was like 25 most terrifying texts, and this is like one of them. <laughs> books that should be banned, part one. Yeah, right, exactly. Books, books that should at the time have been banned. <laughs> Um, but before we get too deep into the text itself and how it came to be, I did want to just talk a little bit about witchcraft by just defining it. I'm going to use sort of a Britannica definition where they say uh, traditionally is the exercise or invocation of alleged supernatural powers to control people or events, practices typically involving sorcery or magic. Although defined differently in disparate historical and cultural contexts, witchcraft has often been seen, especially in the West, as the work of crones who hmm. meet secretly at night, indulge in cannibalism and orgiastic rites with the devil or Satan and perform black magic. So that's the definition of witchcraft we're using today. But today witchcraft means many different things and sure. it does cross many cultures and sort of we think of these different connotations of there's the practice of magic and sorcery beliefs associated with witchcraft and then there's sort of modern you know thoughts of paganism and how that relates to witchcraft and people who actually have their uh wicca as a more of a religious practice so Witchcraft has a long and storied history that, honestly, we really should do just a whole series on witchcraft because mm. it's just a fascinating topic that exists in, like, every culture you can think of. And how that, like I said, the definition has just changed over centuries. And I have so many additional thoughts and feelings about this topic. So stay tuned for additional episodes. But for now... For this episode and for brevity's sake, we're going to focus on how Western Europe viewed witches around, let's say, starting in the 12th century, the 12th, 13th century. So one of the most interesting things to note is that throughout the medieval era, mainstream Christian teachings actually denied the existence of witches and witchcraft. They condemned it as pagan superstition or simply folklore. So Therefore, true witch hunts as we now know them and understand them, it really wasn't a thing for almost the first 1,300 years of Christianity. Right, because the church has a monopoly on the metaphysical. Exactly. Right, because if we're saying that, yeah, this is real, then, oh shit, then do we also have to admit that all the, those gods also exist? You know, yeah. it just gets too muddy, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, they kind of let people keep some of their little pagan traditions and rituals, which we all know the church then also absorbed and turned them into more Christian rites. Things like Halloween is mm -hmm. a great example. I mean, even winter solstice, midsummers, all that stuff. And those are sort of the, 
the positive ones if you want to put a good twist on it. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Yeah, exactly. Well, so it actually is the Christian church that creates that distinction of mm. white magic, such as believing in fairies and sending up prayers for good harvests and celebrations versus black magic, which obviously was done with ill intent. Mm. But even then, like I said, the punishment was more likely you were going to be excommunicated and publicly humiliated, shamed, whatever. We're not really looking at death sentences at this point. But now we're rolling on into the 1200s. Things are shifting. The church seems to be getting a little more wary of folk magic and started to consider it perhaps heresy. And you're going to hear that word a lot today, folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> heresy is the word of the day. And to put that into like the most layman terms, basically heresy is the church saying, you disagree with anything that we say. And I know very few people in this modern day that follow a religion to the letter where they agree with everything it says. You have to be some kind of real hardcore Christian, right. an extremist, really, if you're going to go along with everything doctrine and, and a church says. So I think most of us, there's a little heresy in all of us, isn't there? A healthy dose of heresy, yes. <laughs> I think it's good, right? <laughs> skepticism, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's really what it is. Heresy is skepticism. So anyway. Love throwing around the term heretics, calling everyone heretics left, right, and center, which thus brings us to the Inquisition. Yay! Da -da -da -da. What a show. Here we <laughs> go. I mean, we're not, we're way before the Spanish Inquisition, which is where shit gets really real. Yes. <laughs> this is pre that. But at the beginning of an Inquisition into why don't people want to agree with everything we say? <laughs> That's sort of this version of the Inquisition. Also, real quick, because I have to ask this question. I once put this question out there in the world, I think on like, I don't know, Facebook 40 years ago or whenever when it was newer. But Luke, in your opinion, which do you think is better? The Mel Brooks treatment of the Spanish Inquisition or the Monty Python treatment of the Spanish Inquisition? Oh. <laughs> this is really important to me. I need to Oh, shoot. Okay. There's a lot riding on this. Um <laughs> I mean, I love Mel Brooks so much, and History of the World is so good. It's a great um, movie. It's a it's a great movie, and but I also love the the hot take of Monty Python on history. Nobody um, expects it. No, no, it's it's so seductive. Yeah, whereas Mel Brooks is very clear and it's very just distinct. It's but, very Mel Brooks. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm with I'm with you know Mel Brooks. I'm I'm sticking Ooh. I'm sticking with Mel Brooks. Yeah, and you got to appreciate the fact that Mel Brooks is Jewish. <laughs> exactly and writing that as like the world's biggest fuck you so what that's a defay yeah it's just yeah. great it's, what a defay listen out of defay <laughs> i think public education wise it mel brooks does more <laughs> i i will admit the monty python spanish inquisition is perhaps funnier but it really isn't educational so that's that's a good point luke thank you <laughs> <laughs> Both delightfully culty. Delightfully culty. And the Monty Python cult is so real. Oh, I am a, I am a top-tier member of it's that cult. So delicious. Delicious. But anyway, <laughs> again, totally irrelevant, but I needed to know. Thank you for framing that question. That was really good. Absolutely. So, as I said, the church is starting to get a little antsy about this heresy. And uh, it's actually Pope Alexander the Fourth. He 
is the one who says, okay, let's pump the brakes. We have established and said many times over that witches aren't real, so we can chill out about this. And in 1258, he says that inquisitors should limit their involvement in those cases where there is some clear proof that there are heretics in terms of potential witchcraft or, you know, they should only really get involved if it seems very clear that something is wrong. Sacrifices, praying at the altars of idols, that deserves a response. He is putting a stop in place of this, what is to come, which is the random accusations, you know, mm -hmm. which becomes a huge hallmark of the witch purges and witch trials and witch hunts for centuries to come. So there has to be like a clear and present danger, right. a threat, a threat level, witch level detected. Yeah, know. because like I keep saying, it's they don't consider magic inherently heretical. It's just that it's it's a lot of superstition and erroneous beliefs. And it's sort of it's sort of a way of like looking down on the poor folk, right. if you will. So they're, kind of, they're kind of working around the problem. Yeah, they're trying. So mm -hmm. despite those protections being in place and and you know if it's coming from the pope you would think all right if the pope says it's cool then all right right but the world gets more difficult <laughs> because as we've mentioned in a few episodes now we're rolling up on the black plague yeah <laughs> which you know ruins europe <laughs> uh the hundred years war which we've also talked about brilliantly <laughs> might i add in a previous episode oh, such with a great take. detail such a good take like definitive AP history would be jealous. Yeah. <laughs> it is the Thank AP you, Dan Carlin. It is the AP history take <laughs> in that I didn't read. <laughs> in that I never ever bothered reading nope. it. Yeah. Nope. Uh so you have the war. <laughs> and uh another adorable little thing that is now known as the little ice age, which sounds cute. But it wasn't. Not a <laughs> Pixar was, movie. Not no. delightful. <laughs> it was a tremendous drop in temperatures that caused mass famine and starvation. So, you know, these are traumatic events happening at this time. And when traumatic things happen that we can't explain, we search for meaning. Mm. And some of us search for conspiracies and scapegoats. And in this case, it was people who practiced these magical arts that they felt this was them. Mm. That they were, this was through the devil and something had to be done. Devil's winning the war. Yeah. And it's so funny too, because when you look at things like the Black Plague, it was sort of these old hags, these crones who were practicing their magical arts. And it was believed that these pulstices and all these things that they were doing could actually help. And now all of a sudden, they are now being flipped into the enemy. Right, because they're not using their powers to combat the microbes. Yeah, and so this is where this this switch also flips, where there's no such thing as white magic and black magic anymore. It's just, you are not allowed to practice witchcraft. Mm. So, now let's talk about the misogynistic garbage dump of a human being that was the guy who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, Heinrich Kramer. <laughs> This fucking guy. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, he's a clergyman originally from Alsace, which again. Back in Alsace. I don't know are. how we keep ending up here. Um, 
he was a friar of the Dominican order. Uh, mm. He was also a professor of theology at the University of Salzburg in Austria. Okay. So we're again, we're all in that same kind of French-German region. Mm-hmm. And somewhere around or before, you know, date, dates get real funky in these time periods. So I'm <laughs> loosely around 1474. He is made an inquisitor, part of this newfound concern around heresy. And he takes his job real seriously. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. The most famous case involving him, because his primary concern is witches are fucking real. And we mm-hmm. gotta get him. And so the most famous case involving him at this time is with a woman named Helena Schuberin, I think is how you say her name. Uh, in 1485, Kramer accuses her and puts her on trial for heresy as a witch. The reason why he went after her is because she publicly said that he was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And that his persecution of witches was nonsense. (laughs) That he was not a holy man. That he was a bad man. She would never attend one of his sermons again. And his sermons were mandatory. And she said, fuck that, I'm not going. And if you know anything about the many things in line of you, you potentially being accused of being a witch, it's not attending services. Sure. So he uses that against her. And evidently... On the street, she once spit at him and said, Fie on you, you bad monk. May the falling evil take you. Okay, but what did she think was going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> Poor thing. I don't know what Poor she sweet, thought. outspoken Helena. I get, but like, kudos to her, man. She, oof. Here's the thing, though. Ultimately, a judge actually rules in her favor. All right. Because... As is the case with witch trials at that time, there's no real evidence and there isn't a whole lot of precedence for really punishing you other than like, don't do that, woman. Is this judge also (laughs) a curate or is this a legal proceeding? No, this is an actual legal proceeding. So this is also the beginning of them trying to bring these things together. I see. Yeah, so it's it's they're figuring it out. She was on trial, yeah, with I think it was six other women, and all of them were told you have to do penance for this, mm. and that was it. Which was what do you think? Um, it could have been like you know standard Catholic penance of do ten Hail Marys and <laughs> you know call it a day, <laughs> or uh, they, they, they couldn't have gotten off that easy. Or it could have been yeah the stocks, mm-hmm. uh, some know. kind of public humiliation. Yeah, or public humiliation. Yeah. Or- they don't really mention in anything that I read that it would have been um, any kind of physical corporal, corporal punishment. No, mm-hmm. not, not yet in these cases. Not yet. <laughs> oh, don't worry, boo. We're getting there. <laughs> so, uh, so obviously this pissed Kramer off a lot. Yeah. And I'm sure he was incredibly embarrassed by the whole ordeal. He had wanted to continue his inquisition in this German town. He felt like they need me here. He's so crazy. He's like, this is proof that they need me here. They don't know what they're doing, right? And it's so funny because the town, Strasbourg, not to be confused with Strasbourg, which we talked about <laughs> with dancing place. Yes. Strasbourg in uh, Germany, they're basically like, you're weird. You're a moron. And you talked way too much about this lady's sex life in this trial. And you made everyone uncomfortable. We don't fucking want you here. And 
so he has been talking to the Pope at that time, which is Pope Innocence the Eighth, mm-hmm. which is a famous horrible pope (laughs) with the most ironic name because if he's anything it's not innocent (laughs) like pious yeah oh my god yeah no he's very much responsible for the inquisition he's a terrible terrible person so and of course this guy pope innocence is like i'm on your side i absolutely believe in the persecution prosecution and ultimately execution of witches. So he creates this papal bull, which I had, I was, I, these terms are like, I vaguely remember them from Catholic school. Yeah, it's like an edict, right? Right, because I'm like, it does fucking sound like bull, but I don't think that's what they mean. This bull, (laughs) let me tell you. Papal bull. It's a bull, uh, Somis desiderantes, which is makes it sound classy. It's a decree. It's just a decree basically telling the Bishop of Strasbourg, like, let him do what he needs to do. I'm I'm telling you to let him do what he needs to do. And yet the bitch was still the bitch. <laughs> the bishop, not the bitch. Uh, the bishop says, nah, we're good. We don't need him here. <laughs> and they give him the boot. And that is why Kramer writes the Malaeus Maleficarum. Ooh. Because he is bitter. He thinks he is completely right Mm -hmm. in his beliefs. And he's basing his beliefs on other writings by St. Thomas, things written in the Bible, other people throughout history who've like made things up about witchcraft and, and the dangers of it. So he really firmly thinks he's in the right here and he's going to prove everybody wrong and it really is very hitlery isn't it like yeah he's out for revenge and yeah. he's made up his mind and it's pseudo bs there's no field work it's just like i'm i'm right i'm indignant i'm are you trying to cast me out yeah C- come for me boo yeah it big time and you know he's so much the pope is so on his side in this that he actually as part of the publication of this book, he has the bull and and part in part of it just saying, like, see, even the Pope says so. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bull from the Pope. And it yes. says, I can do this. And you guys still didn't let me do it. So yeah. So, no. Get ready, bitches. So what's what's interesting about this book is you'll often see copies where the cover actually says it's co-authored which is really interesting. Sometimes his name is written as Jacob or maybe it was uh, Jakob sure. Sprenger. In the version that I have, it's written as James Sprenger. Uh, he was another clergyman, a fellow inquisitor at the time, but he died when this was published. Mm. So there's a lot of debate over whether or not he wrote it at all, whether he maybe was part of it. And some people friends of his then said he didn't even like this dude Kramer. He didn't agree with the shit he had to say. He put his name on the cover of this book for cred. Damn. Yeah. So that's a cool side mystery that yeah. I, I we probably will never really know. But yeah, it, that was an interesting part of this. Because all hmm. in all, he sounds like a fucking slimy guy. And the kind of guy was like, mm, see, I have the Pope. Mm, see, right. I have this clergyman and he yeah. is brilliant. So you guys should agree with me. Yeah. On the back cover. A great read, Pope Innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Even Jesus says. <laughs> I was going to say co-authored by the Holy Spirit. Uh- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> me and St. Thomas say. 
<laughs> it was actually Francis Bacon wrote the whole thing. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the contents of the book now that we've sort of established why it was created. Uh, it's divided into three parts where in which he posits and answers his own questions. <laughs> numerous questions might I add this is not a short read in this huge like sized book that I've been carrying around I've shown it to you Luke I posted it on Instagram it is not a it is not a small book it is like this Ooh, where it's columns and columns per page tiny typeset and it's still 300 pages so this is not a cute read it's a tome. <laughs> oh my god it's a toneless poem this Ooh. one hey call back. <laughs> so basically, each part of the three parts is worse than the last. <laughs> um, but his thesis statement is derived directly from the Bible. The famous quote from Exodus 22, 18, you shall not suffer a witch to live. So all of this it really is based on that. And there, there's different interpretations on that based on which Bible you read. Sometimes it's a, it's a sorceress. Right, which translation. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Means, but means everything. That's the crux of what, what he's doing here. So uh, I'm going to summarize each part because like I just made it very clear, the shit is long. Mm. It's repetitive. He also, like Mein Kampf, contradicts himself rambles wildly about nothing, mm. says the same thing 42 times in the course of like a page. It's a horrible read, to be honest. <laughs> it really is. So I'm doing you all a huge favor right now so you don't have to read it. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't get this like audible. Like, oh God, no, audible. Oh, this would be awful on audible. Okay. But the point is, this is clearly written by a pissy bitch with an axe to grind but lacking in a lot of actual facts. He, it's just bits and pieces that he's gathered from other insane people. Mm. So part one, AKA the first part, as he calls it. So this is where he's laying the groundwork by saying, yes, witches are real. They are in league with the devil. And those who say otherwise are clearly heretics and possibly witches themselves. So Easy take peasy. that, Bishop. <laughs> take that. Bishops be crazy. <laughs> yeah. So he's really putting you in this position of thinking, well, shit, this brilliant professor, right? Because he's got credibility, you would think, behind him, right? He's a professor of theology. He's a clergyman. Right. The Pope is in his corner. So shit, maybe he knows what he's talking about. And if I don't agree with what he's talking about, oh, my God, am I a witch? <laughs> right. So it's a great way to set you up to fail, right? Mm -hmm. To get you on his side right off the bat. He also dives right in to one of the strongest themes of this book, which is god awful misogyny. Like mm. misogyny that is hard to read. It's so painfully bad. Not that there's any good misogyny, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> there's like Dane Cook and there's this. <laughs> so he makes it very clear this is largely an issue with women. Mm -hmm. Men, of course, can be witches or whatever, but mm. like this is a women's issue. And I'm going to come back to that big time in a minute because who lordy does he talk some shit? But finishing up on part one a little bit. He also establishes the most dangerous precedent in part one of this. He gives an enormous amount of agency and power to the accuser, 
Mm-mm. Yeah. Lucas shaking his head. No, no. He blatantly says that pretty much anyone can and should accuse and testify against someone that they believe to be a witch. And he even goes out of his way to say that can include criminals, people with mental illness, and even children should be accusing and testifying. And when you think of children accusing and testifying, you automatically think, oh, so this really set the stage for For a little town called Salem in 1692. He gave full permission and encouragement to do this. It's very dystopian, very Gilead, like mm-hmm. very 1984. And Super it's also creepy. a way of protecting oneself. Mm-hmm. If you're the accuser, you're like, I'm on the right side of this equation, you know? Oh, yeah. No, you you are. Well, I'll get to that in one second, too. So let's move on to the second part, <laughs> part two. Uh, this is where we get into some of the most well-known notions around witches and their identification, that they're predominantly female. Similar with the misogyny we spoke about with the dancing plague, he makes it a point to note that women are just far more susceptible to the devil's temptations. We are both mentally and physically weaker. We are easily deceived and cajoled. We are the primary individuals likely to participate in activities like signing the devil's book. Mm. recruiting other witches eating babies apparently is one that we do a lot (laughs) making sacrifices casting spells uh having sex with the devil or demons incubi if you will and using animals known as familiars to do our evil bidding you know how women be And this is part of the church's doctrine going back to the Garden of Eden, right? Oh, that the women carry the sin. What's really interesting in this doctrine, in this writing, is the only woman he reveres is the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. Can't touch her. Yeah. She's she's like... the pinnacle of a perfect woman and it's like what such an easy role model that's to not even to. possible <laughs> <laughs> so let me go through some of his just phenomenal quotes about women hold on to your horses because these are something else they have slippery tongues and are unable to conceal from the fellow women those things which by evil arts they know And since they are weak, they find an easy and secret manner of vindicating themselves by witchcraft. (laughs) They know no moderation in goodness or vice, and all witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is in women insatiable. (laughs) Such BS. So great. She is more carnal than a man as is clear from her many carnal abominations. There was a defect in the formation of the first woman since Mm. she was formed from a bent rib that is a rib of the breast, which is bent, as it were, in a contrary direction to a man. And since through this defect, she is an imperfect animal, she always deceives. Damn. This is twisted. Not even done. When she hates someone whom she formerly loved, then she seethes with anger and impatience in her whole soul, just as the tides of the sea are always heaving and boiling. 
like this all reads like the comment section on an incels YouTube page. <laughs> if I was a woman who was allowed to read at this time, I would be terrified of this text. Like, Jesus, dude, who hurt you? <laughs> Seriously, like mommy issues or something? What happened to you? <laughs> and, you know... A celibate priest, of course, being the authority on all these of things. Of course, all yeah. about women and our carnal desires, right? And the thing is, which I think most of us know in terms of those who were accused, the people who were most at risk were people who were poverty-stricken, mentally ill, those women who were previously considered healers, herbalists. And he goes out of his way to really attack midwives, Mm. He says they surpass all others in wickedness and that they cause all problems related to pregnancy. He has decided that if a child dies mm. or a woman dies as a result of childbirth or whatever, this is directly because of a midwife who is a witch. Wow. He he talks about, oh, well, it's because they ate the babies and then offered them up to the devil. At the sure, time of their birth. That's, their, that's the real motive. Yeah. You know, you know, those midwives, they love eating babies. Oh my God. So yeah, that's a little, that's just a little taste of the kind of shit that's written in this book about women. And that's like not scratching the surface. Yeah, really, truly. It's horrible. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't now talk about what I think is the best part of the Malayas. <laughs> I have to get through this without giggling the whole time, and it's going to be hard, so please bear with me. Kramer spends quite a fair amount of time talking about how much witches love stealing men's dicks. <laughs> okay, so now we get to the trauma. That, now we know what happened to him. Okay, got it. Got it. He puts forth not one, because part two is all about him He's putting out, quote unquote, case studies, real stories of mm. witch, witches and things that they've done. And they all read like, well, this one guy told me that his friend saw this one lady who did the thing <laughs> with the other guy. They all sound like that. She but, was running around with a bag of penises. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. But he puts out not one, not two, but three case studies involving penises. So Two of them are where he claims that witches put on a glamour spell. And if you've ever seen the phenomenal film, The Craft. Yes. You remember when they're practicing their glamours where they'll change their eye color or their hair color. So glamour comes from this mm. where it's you're sort of making someone see something that isn't actually happening. In this case, a witch would put a glamour spell on a man to make him think his penis disappeared. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Where'd it go? What? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is just a prank, really. Uh -huh. it's still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the third account, which <laughs> this one takes the cake. Oh, Strap in. Hold on to your penises, everyone. I'm clutching right now. <laughs> <laughs> the third account mentions this phenomenon of witches keeping disembodied penises as pets. <laughs> yeah, I'm into this. Okay. <laughs> and they feed them oats and other grains. No. <laughs> and this is a quote. This is an actual quote from the text. 
what shall we think about those witches who somehow take members in large numbers, 20 or 30, and shut them up together in a bird's nest or some box <laughs> where they move about like living members eating oats or other feed? No. Wait. This has been seen Why? by many. This has been seen by many, Luke, according to him. This has been seen by many. And it is a matter of common talk. Okay. Everybody knows. It is said that it is all done by devil's work and illusion for the sense of those who see the penises are deluded in the way we have said. You know, Myrna, she lives up the hill. She's got a whole nest of dicks next to her house. They're always munching all night. It's her dick nest. Come on, man. He even tells a story about one guy who is trying to get his penis back. <laughs> and so he goes up to the witch who tells him to climb the tree where there is a nest that contained, you know, like a whole bunch of penises. Sure, pick one. And he was allowed to take anyone he liked. I mean, that's, that's not a bad situation. It's not a bad deal, but... <laughs> He did pick one, and she was like, no, 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 no. That belongs to a priest, and it happened to also be the biggest penis. I mean, I think, you know, it's possible this this text was misshelved in the ancient library of Strasbourg as I don't know, a fan fiction or something. I mean, it's like, what? Dick the, right, some kind of Harlequin novel. Like, what? I mean, the emas I mean, but this is like literal emasculation. Right. I mean, what I Cuckolding. think. I think, regardless of your sexual orientation as a man, losing your penis is a tremendous fear. Right. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> it's a beloved appendage. It is. Yeah, you wake up every morning and you're like, "Thank God it's still there." Um, <laughs> right. And in and in run away a, in the night. Yeah. Yes. And in a heteronormative world, men are most afraid of women doing something to their penises correct mock mocking it yep taking it yes <laughs> this is their power source yeah right it's That's and you're trying to take it away you, you can you take, take that away you can't take that away from me it's not leaving okay um and to that i say oh yeah check out my dick in a box <laughs> <laughs> go ahead take whatever one you want <laughs> <laughs> gold. This is all gold. Uh, I'm just thinking about like the aardvark, like eating eating oats visual. <laughs> no. Like so gross. It's just really and there's no like there's no visual aids here in this no, text. Okay, no. thank thank goodness for that. None. No, no engravings, no woodcuts. Yeah, wood, no, I woodcuts, literally. I'm thrilled to say there is no uh graphic novel version of this. <laughs> As of yet, maybe we're inspiring some listeners. I mean, there's something there. There's a there there for sure. Yeah. So let's Wild. move on to part three, the third part. This is where he lays out all the suggestions for legal procedures required for finding, trying, and executing witches. Mm. This section, without question, is the most terrifying since this is where he is giving lawyers and clergymen carte blanche to do whatever they have to in order to obtain a confession from a perceived witch. This is where this shit gets really scary. One of the most insane provisions here is that all accused witches are in fact presumed guilty and they 
do not have to be proven innocent. So it's nothing like the legal system we know and love. Mm -hmm. um, and by having that in place, basically that means, okay, so if we end up killing this person who's in our custody because of the various tortures we're putting them through, that's not on us because we're not trying to prove them innocent. We don't really, we don't know if they were innocent. We assume they're guilty. Right. So There's that no takes a lot of the heat off of you, right? There's no burden of proof. The only burden is on the accused, which is the cards are stacked against them. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. In more ways than you'd think, which I'll elucidate on here in a minute. Legally, heretics weren't allowed to face their accusers. They received no counsel oh. and were often victims, obviously, of false accusations. So they're in a bad spot. Mm -mm. before it even starts. Mm -hmm. So everything, uh, of course, begins with an accusation followed by an immediate arrest of an individual potentially just ripped out of their home, not even knowing what's happening. Uh, they're taken to the courts and then they're subjected to just humiliating examinations that I'm sure you've read about or heard about before that involve removal of clothing. He talks about it needing to be a woman of, you know, good standing and, you know, someone with propriety. It's nothing about this is supposed to be sexual or whatever. It's, it's really, it's functional because the next step is to then shave the individual entirely. Mm. Although he does talk about this one section where he's like, uh, in some places they'll shave them like all the way, but, you know, it's like he's uncomfortable with the idea of <laughs> women having a Naked. pubic area. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like so i don't know i don't know i don't know how i feel about that but whatever i don't want to talk about it later editions will go further on this anyway want to hear more about this box of dicks <laughs> he's telling us some things here <laughs> yeah he's gay i think i think he's very <laughs> repressed i mean that makes it may, would, would make a lot of sense you know right? especially someone who'd be attracted to religious life you know someone mm -hmm. who's an other someone who could be celibate and someone who's trying to understand why they are with the way they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the woman is the enemy. Terrified. Terrified yeah. of women. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. Or or he's just been brutalized some way Victimized. by his mother or exactly. something his whole life. Who knows? Yeah, the abbess. Mm -hmm. But he's not a normal person, clearly. No. So, yeah, in the removal of clothing and the shaving, they're searching for sort of that mark something that will distinguish them, some evidence. And the evidence could be like, you have a wart, or you have a lot of body hair, or you, have, you have a third nipple, <laughs> like stuff that really doesn't mean anything. Right. They're just looking for for anything, yeah. right? Skin tag, witch. Yeah. It's not it's not directly at this time period, not directly referred to as like the witch's tit or we know some of those terms, uh, the, the devil's mock. Uh, he doesn't use that terminology, that stuff that sort of evolves over time. But he's setting the stage for this kind of stuff because um, this is certainly not the last treatise on witch hunting, searching, identification, etc. So seeing that there's, quote unquote, evidence, then brings them to the next section of this lovely, lovely pursuit, which is the torture, which will hopefully yield a confession mm. and ultimately an execution. Mm. What's really interesting, and I did not know this before researching, is that prior to 1215, the legal system largely functioned around trials by ordeal. Mm. 
all right, I don't know if you know the term itself. You know what it is. And and so did I once I realized the definition. And we absolutely, you and I, like this would be a fun one to do together where we go through different types of trials by ordeal. Mm-hmm, like we just take mm-hmm. turns going through them. Because basically, it's the ancient practice of having people endure extreme dangerous torture or acts of endurance to prove their innocence in a judiciary matter. This would include things like trial by fire, trial by combat. Mm -hmm. You know, this is stuff we, that goes way, way back to ancient civilizations. Yeah. So barbaric. Yeah. So that was pre 1215. That's all there was. And that got sort of flipped around when Pope innocent, the third said, this is fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it was at the, what do I have here? The fourth Lateran Council of 1215. He's like, why don't we have trials with evidence? Trials of oath is what they'd be known as. And that's the foundation of the judicial system we know and love today. We like that. Yeah. So isn't that interesting? I hadn't really put that together. That's fascinating. But all that being said, they were hella into this uh, you know, early 1200s shit here during these uh, Inquisition years, because God knows they were all about torture mm-hmm. to get what they wanted. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the, he doesn't he he talks a lot about torture, not necessarily in in its method in great detail, but like how to do it well. One one example of torture that he does mention, and, and there's so many, and again, it, it would make for a really horrible but really interesting episode. He does specifically mention the trapado, also known as corda. Do you know this one? No. This is a form of torture where the victim's hands are tied behind their back, and then the victim is suspended by a rope attached to the wrists. <sighs> So you're talking about dislocating Ouch. the shoulders yeah. probably almost immediately. So mm-hmm. the pain is excruciating. And then to really up the ante, they would potentially add weight to the body, which would, if your shoulders weren't already dislocated, that would certainly do it. But the yes. pain has to be un- unbearable, terribly bad. Oh, my God. Um, it oh. couldn't go on yeah. for more than an hour without the person just dying. So, um, yeah. yeah, real bad. Real, real bad. So... <sighs> The, what I was saying was, it's not that he's talking about the methods in great detail. He's talking about sort of how to be a good torturer. So I'm going to read you this little excerpt. If the prisoner will not confess the truth satisfactorily, other sorts of tortures must be placed before him with the statement that unless he will confess the truth, he must endure these also. But if not, even thus he can be brought into terror and to the truth, then the next day or the next but one is to be set for a continuation of the tortures, not a repetition, for it must not be repeated unless new evidence is produced. The judge must then address to the prisoners the following sentence. We, the judge, etc., do assign to you such and such a day for the continuation of tortures that from your own mouth the truth may be heard and that the whole may be recorded by the notary. So he's saying yeah, torture, 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 but like, don't do the same thing. You got to really mix it up. <laughs> Keep them on their toes. Keep them guessing. So they're always scared. And this is assuming, this is assuming you even lived through the first day of torture. And one of the so horrible, not only did they inflict torture, they promised that if they would confess that the torture would end and that they wouldn't be executed, they would probably go to prison. And that was a lie. They lied to them. 
They mm. lied to them to get them to confess. They had every intention of executing them. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And he Dude, says it true. outright. He's like, yeah, don't lie to them and tell them this. He says it in the book. Mm. Yeah. It's disgusting. <laughs> There's no way out. Yeah. So the only day, the only way that you would live out your days potentially after this situation is in prison. They would lie to you and tell you, oh, you could go into exile if you give up other witches, which again is a common thing we hear in the Salem witch trials as well. Um, If you give up other witches, you're saving yourself, but you're not really saving yourself because you're going to starve to death in prison because the main form of torture is you have no clothing and you have bread and water and that's it. That's (laughs) your life. Jeez. Yeah. So you're going to die regardless. It just depends on how quickly. That's awful. And how painfully. Yeah, exactly. But the ultimate goal here is that they want all witches destroyed. Yes. This is an aggressive extermination tactic. Yes. And the idea is that they should be destroyed by burning them. And for those that maybe don't know this, the implication behind that, the reasoning behind that is that a burned body cannot be resurrected on Judgment Day. So Mm. you really are gone which is why some people are not comfortable with cremation sure you know there's that idea idea behind that but yeah it's it's a very sinister thing like you don't deserve any second chances here right. friends We're depriving your spirit of a second of an afterlife or of a reanimation yeah or yeah dark and it's a it's an awful end mm. just it's just a terrible terrible way to die as we know, one of the most famous, of course, being uh, Joan of Arc. And that was uh, 1431, mm-hmm. I believe, is that date. She was burned as a heretic. It was mostly politically motivated. And it was also her kind of just being a badass bitch and like wearing men's clothing and fighting and them being like, who the fuck do you think you are? So again, it's all this same anti-female fear. Right. The state will always win, even mm-hmm. if you are uh, a different thinker, even if you are different in any way. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You can defy us all you want. Mm-hmm. You're not going to win. And we're going to make sure that your heavenly ascent is also taken care of. Yeah, where where you get nothing, which is why I always think about one of the brilliant bits of writing in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, is that he focuses at the very end of the play on John Proctor screaming about his name. Mm. Like, don't make me sign this. This is my name. It's all I have. Because, yeah, that's all that's left of you after these trials. That's right. All that exists is that you, in fact, existed. Right. So it's such a powerful notion. Yeah. You're you know? extinguished. Your identity is all you have. Yeah. It's it's, oh, it's such a bleak existence. Horrible. And so, I mean, that's the book. It's It's horrible. So he initially walks away with this book thinking like, this is a fucking masterpiece. Right. Everyone's going to love this. And he tries to get an endorsement for it from some of the top, you know, theologians of the time, the top guys of the Inquisition, specifically at the faculty of Cologne. Hmm. And they condemn the book. Okay. Yeah. They're saying this is recommending unethical, illegal procedures, and it's inconsistent with our Catholic doctrine. Right. It's not Christian. Yeah. We are not signing off on this shit. And yet, probably Hmm. again, because he had that papal endorsement and there were people who agreed with him, it did get published. It's a bull endorsement, though, honestly. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) if we're being real. Yeah. 
So it would become known as the Witch Hunter's Handbook. Mm. And he giveth and he taketh away, but that goddamn printing press. <laughs> because of it, it was published 29 times between 1487 and 1669. Whoa. Sold out many times. And it was accepted by the Roman Catholic Church, ultimately the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants Whoa. alike. Which, how often do those <laughs> Brought guys together. Agree? Yeah, rarely. Uh, That's insane. Spread throughout Europe, like like fire, especially this France, Germany, England kind of area. area. Yeah. <laughs> and the world would never be the same. So it wasn't, it wasn't a curiosity. It was, it was seen as a, 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 a how-to guide. It's a how-to. It's literally a how-to. I don't imagine there's reliable data, but is there an estimate as to the number of people who were impacted by this, by these procedures? We'll never know for sure. Yeah. The estimates are broad. Sure. But generally, they say anywhere from 30,000 to upwards of 100,000 people were killed in the just these 300 years. Wow. And it's setting a precedent, even if it's not somebody who's following this to the letter. Yes. It's creating a cultural practice that's accepted by virtue of the fact that it's happened before. Yep. And it's upheld by various authority figures. Mm -hmm. um, this is extremely... Yeah. Dangerous in terms of people at their worst. Yes, because now you've got, again, for once, the church and the state are on board mm -hmm. together. Different parts of Christianity are agreeing on this thing. That's terrifying. That's... And it goes on from the from the publication of this book in uh, 1486, 87, till... 1782, when a woman named Anna Goldie is the last woman to be killed as a witch, she she was beheaded. She was the last one in what? Europe. In in this in this, I mean, listen, as terrifying as it is, in other countries, there's still people being killed for being witches. Yes, I think it was something like three thousand people were killed in uh, Tanzania. They were burned alive in in recent years. I mean, it's it's a it's a powerful thing. People are genuinely afraid of witches. Well, and this thing is a weapon for the war on women. I mean, it, you know, women's position. It does it does so much harm mm -hmm. in terms of that. It creates it sets the stage for many other types of witch hunts to come. Right for uh, satanic panic. Mm -hmm. This this real belief that you can worship the devil and gain power and influence from that in some way and cause harm to others and you have to be stopped yes. you know it's just it's it this really is why it is deserving uh, of the title of one of the most terrifying books ever written well and in that age you know something that was printed and was written was immensely powerful and yeah. We didn't necessarily, I mean, there were critics of the text, which you point out so adroitly, but to think of the fact that it's written, mm -hmm. it is written, it is therefore sacred, it is therefore mm -hmm. incontrovertible. I don't know what the level of literary or legal critiques were, you know, besides those who spoke out, but they clearly were in a minority or overruled by the masses. And probably scared enough to quiet down pretty quickly. Yes. And also how it's all very flimsy in terms of oh, how many terrible things have happened because of a, a verse, 
a single verse of the of the Bible mm-hmm. that is taken out of context and is used as ammunition to defend unspeakable acts of hate, intolerance. We see that time and time again. Gee, Luke, which part of the Bible are you referring to? <laughs> well, Leviticus? I, of course, Leviticus is, is, Leviticus is what comes to mind. But, you know... <laughs> Deuteronomy, take your pick. I mean, yeah, oh, any of those dudes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a recipe of hate, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it always fascinates me and depresses me to think about the unspeakable evil that comes out of a belief practice in yeah. which the goal is to create a heavenly kingdom on earth or to seek salvation. But that comes at a cost of, well, if I'm going somewhere, who is not going somewhere? Yeah. It's not like we're all entitled to anything. Not It's not universal. We're not all spiritual beings on equal footing. There has to mm-hmm. be someone who is I'm stepping on yeah. to advance my position or to say I'm holier than this person. And I think it's really interesting to think about the motivations of Heinrich and his backstory, which I'm sure is, is maybe not as documented. I know. Um, and that is because he is really strident. And He's scary scary and what a horrible horrible legacy to come from a supposed man of the cloth you know a monk a holy man but think Um, of any anyone involved in the inquisition was a holy person allegedly mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and i mean we can if you want we we and maybe we should do a, a spanish inquisition episode because you know we can we can giggle about sketches and things but it is not funny it is absolutely horrendous what happened and that was the church the church has committed foul foul horrible acts yeah but you know to your point before the supremacy of modern christianity or modern religions there was this competitive marketplace and mm-hmm. there were so many alternative belief systems and practices that were that were threatening the one true church. Yeah. So you got to get them in line, right? And you got to get them in line. And so, right, from the Crusades to Inquisitions to whatever, yep. there's so much bloodshed that is sanctioned by the church, which we look at it you know, through the lens of retrospect and we think of it's how ironic and all of this. Yeah. But just the stacks of corporeal remains in its wake is quite a expense and um, difficult to reconcile with anyone who believes in any faith because most faith practices have a dark history. Um, Some are just further back than others and are easier to sort of overlook. But this is quite, quite a chilling, quite a chilling history. Yeah. So I thought it would be a good way to start off spooky season with one of the spookiest books I've ever fucking read because I am terrified of this text. This is nuts. Um, I know. To summarize, yeah. you know, to me, this truly is one of the most uh, terrifying aspects of humanity where an idea is so easily planted and then it grows into this monstrosity, in this case, steeped in stu- in superstition mm-hmm. and frankly man's fear of women yeah and the the power that men feel women have over them and why men feel like they have to you know demean limit and or destroy women it really is one of the greatest tragedies of human history without question and as museum people we are duty bound to bear witness and understand those dark moments in history so 
not that I'm rushing out to see this, but <laughs> are there extant copies or places where one can explore this this text? Yeah, so because I do want to do more on on witchcraft and and you know potentially do a treatment on Salem specifically, um, I decided just to look into copies of uh, the Malaeus Maleficarum, and they're around, man, more than you'd think, which is impressive because it's I mean this is an ancient text; it's really mm -hmm. really old. Uh, Library of Congress has one. The a lot of like medical libraries have them which i thought was kind of interesting. interesting yeah the the countway library of medicine in boston college of physicians in philadelphia has one they're in connection with the uh the the Muter museum so that mm -hmm. kind of makes sense and sure. of course they've had it on display many times because mm -hmm. it's such a perfect fit for that museum one of the oldest copies that i came across was uh the Christopher Keller Jr. Library at the General Theological Seminary, which again is not surprising that they would have one, and that's here in New York. And their copy is from 1492. Wow, one of the yeah. oldest copies. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And in general, that's there's a certain name for that that they use when you find literature, like a uh, first edition literature from that far back. But I can't think of it off the top of my head. But yeah, mm. so I feel like they're not hard to find. I think you'll find them of different ages. Whenever there's going to be an exhibit on witchcraft, there's a good chance if it's a good institution, like uh, a New York Historical Society also has access to one. If they're doing an exhibit, there's a good chance they're probably going to get their hands on a copy of this and you'll be able to see it in person. Mm. If not, all these places are essentially libraries. And like we've mentioned before on the podcast, if you really want to take a look at it, you can probably make an appointment and go in to one of these places and take a gander. You're never going to be able to touch it. Yeah, <laughs> you're not going to be not gonna be able to get in spitting distance of it. Yeah. No, it's going to be under several layers of glass. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's the thing with these with these kinds of artifacts is we want them to stick around for a really long time like we've mentioned before. So, we they can't be out and about in the world as much as we would like to see them. So, but they but they're around, which is pretty cool. And I didn't even get into looking all over Europe. There there're probably way more copies. Yeah. In Germany and and France and and England and everywhere else. Wow, this is such an amazing story and thank you so much for this great retrospective. Um You're it's welcome. chilling. I know. And I am very intrigued, um especially from the fact that from a preservation perspective, it's amazing that there's so many copies. Isn't it? I, and I think just it's because it was published so many goddamn times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can easily, I mean, you, you can literally go on Goodreads or Amazon right now and get your own fucking copy if you really sure. want to read it. I sure. mean, that's, it's, it's an accessible text. It's easy to find in that regard, too. But yeah, no, I really think it's just it had this sickening 300-year lasting power. Mm-hmm. Serving as, I'm sure, food for several worms here and there. God bless mm -hmm. them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is really scary. And also interesting to think about the kinds of texts that might exist in 2600, mm -hmm. you know, that we would be that future podcasters or aliens would be looking back at from, <laughs> from our experience to think our of our future like, alien podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> but also to think that I don't know if a book if it were to come out today or even, well, today, let's say, 
if a book could have that kind of staying power in the kind of saturated media environment in which we live. And dare I say, maybe almost the post-literate world in which we live, <laughs> in which people don't really read, which is a sad indictment. I mean, listen, people didn't really read that much then. And look how much reaction that got. <laughs> That's a really good point. There's a positive spin. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like the, the Mein Kampf, you know, in 20 in 600 years you know that's really mm -hmm. interesting but like yeah there's only a handful of books thank goodness i would hope that that we would it would be in company with you know yes um, thank god thank god but mm -hmm. uh oof, freaky yeah. that's the right <laughs> that's the right note to end this on Ugh. i'll be uh i'll be sleeping very carefully in my bed tonight <laughs> And I come to you. Yes. With my with my box of penises. That was the best part. Oh, without question. You had me a part two. <laughs> come for the tortures, stay for the box of dicks. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Morbid Museum for more morbid content. Be sure to follow us and continue listening. We have all kinds of spooky content planned for October. <coughs> Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside The Morbid Museum Podcast. Bye. Bye-bye.